Our preacher this morning is Craig Farrell, and he is the president of Leadership Resources International. Uh, Leadership Resources International says that they are an evangelical missions agency committed to launching pastoral training movements worldwide. They train pastors throughout Asia, Africa, and uh, the Americas to teach and preach the word of God to the heart with the heart of God. So uh, Craig is the president, and he oversees uh, a number of different staff, and he is a stimulating teacher and has equipped and encouraged pastors and churches throughout the U.S., Latin America, and Asia. So Craig, come. Good morning. I'm stimulating in a few minutes, right? <laughs> it's great to be here at Rock Valley Bible Church. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to this for several weeks now. Uh, one of the places we teach pastors is in Nepal. And of course, your church has been deeply connected with Nepal for several years. I was there uh, last year in April with uh, your pastor, Steve, and we had a marvelous time helping to train a group of pastor trainers. Our strategy is not just to train pastors, but to train trainers of pastors. Big difference. We are working with two groups of pastors in Nepal. Maybe we can put the map up. Thanks, Adriana. One in the east and one in the west. A total of three pastor trainers. And we are working with these men. A little higher? A little lower. How's that? Fantastic. We are um, working with these two groups of pastor trainers. We've made a four-year commitment to teach them how to, how to study, teach, and preach God's Word and to do it with the heart of the Father. And uh, Pastor Steve was part of that training uh, last uh, year ago, April, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. What God is... You probably know this. Uh, forgive me if I'm telling you things you already know, but... Nepal is a place where God is at work in powerful ways. Twenty years ago, there were virtually no believers in the country of Nepal. It was a Hindu kingdom. But in these last 20 years, the Spirit of God has been poured out, and we have seen uh, hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ. And so now the great need is for pastors who know how to faithfully study, teach, and preach God's Word. And so these 30 men that we are training, they go out after we leave, and they are training over 350 other pastors and leaders throughout the country, impacting two or 300 churches in the nation. And this all in... in, in, They have a communist-leaning government right now, There has been persecution in the past, so what God is doing there is so marvelous. So thank you for the role that uh, you have been playing in this great country of Nepal. One of the men that we are teaching told us about another man, a second-generation man that he is teaching. And listen to the testimony. I, I just love this. Some pastors in Nepal, this, this is second-generation pastors, so we didn't train them, the guys we trained in this country. Some pastors in Nepal take the Word of God lightly. I now realize that to preach means to study and to get into the text. 
Before, we used to put our, our ideas onto the text, but now we are putting the text first in preaching God's Word. My own wife has spoken of my improvement. She has made a big change in my preaching. Before, she wouldn't even come to church, but now she looks forward to hearing from me. I love that. It's the power of God, God's Word. This uh, is Pastor Tom Rye. He is one of the men that uh, Pastor Steve and I were teaching, and his story is amazing. And in fact, God used Pastor Steve in a powerful, powerful way in this man's life. And at the Near the end of the message, I will tell you that story. It was as though God took a sledgehammer to Pastor Tom's uh, mind and heart through Pastor Steve. I'll tell you about it a little bit later. But first I want to tell you about some kings. Some kings. King King Birendra was the king of Nepal for 30 years. He was a much-loved and respected king. And then ten years ago, his son, in a drunken rage, murdered his own father. Unbelievable. And in literature, some of the greatest stories are about kings that are not recognized as king, that are betrayed as king that have to go through a long, arduous path to finally be acknowledged as king. I think of um, Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. He's not recognized as the king of Gondor until the third movie, right? End of the third movie. I think of Shasta. Do you remember Shasta? One of the Chronicles of Narnia is the horse and his boy. If you haven't read that, read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. The horse and his boy. And it's about Shasta, who is the rightful king of Archenland, but he's not acknowledged as such until he has to go through this long, difficult path. And then uh, um, Edward Tudor of England and Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper. So there's this storyline that we love about the, a, a rightful king that is not recognized as the rightful king. And of course, the Bible has a story of one of those kings as well. But this king, this is a true story. And he is the rightful king. The story is summarized in Psalm 2. And I'm just going to read very quickly through Psalm 2. This isn't our main text today, but I want to share with you about this rightful king. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
So here's the scene. The kings of the earth have gathered together and they are fomenting a rebellion. A rebellion against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. So, what do you think? God's up in heaven wringing His hand saying, Oh no, what am I going to do? I've got a rebellion afoot. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King on Zion, My holy hill. I don't need you kings. I have My own King. And we learn about this King, verse 7. And in fact, this King that has been the Anointed One speaks now. And He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your heritage, the ends of the earth, Your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God has chosen His own anointed, His Son. And He will reign. And He will reign over all the nations. And He will reign with an iron fist. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son in an act of submission lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You want to be a friend or a foe of this great King? If you're His friend, blessed are you. If you're His foe, woe to you. Well, when this king finally came on the scene, he wasn't recognized as the great king, was he? Turn to uh, the book of Matthew. We're going to do a uh, 32,000-foot flyover of the book of Matthew this morning because the great theme of Matthew is this, that the rightful king came, but he wasn't acknowledged as a rightful king. And in fact, Matthew uses three terms. And they all have kingly associations to describe Christ. Christ, Messiah, the Chosen One, the Anointed One. Read about that in Psalm 2. The Son of David. Who's David? Well, he's the greatest king of Israel. He's the one that God made a promise to that your throne will last forever. You will never fail to have a son on the throne. And then the third term Matthew uses is son of man. Son of man. We'll talk about that in a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son 
of Abraham. Now, why does Matthew pick out these two ancestors? David and Abraham. Abraham, the older, is, of course, the the beginning of the nation of Israel, right? He's the great-grandfather of Israel, or he's a grandfather of Israel. And God made a promise to him that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You remember that? And later he reiterates the promise, but then he adds that kings will come from Abraham. So Abraham and then David, already mentioned, is the greatest king of Israel. Then there's three in this genealogy. Genealogies are boring, aren't they? You say, don't, don't you read a genealogy? You say, why is, why is this genealogy here? This is a great genealogy. And we're not going to go through it in detail. But verses, there's three sections in this genealogy. The first one is verses 2 to 6, begins with Abraham, the father of Isaac, and ends with Jesse, the father of David, the king. It's not just David, it's David, the king. The second section, in the middle of verse 6, and David was the father of Solomon, and so on. And verse 11, Josiah, the father of Jochaniah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Huh. Deport- Why does Matthew bother to tell us about that? Verse 12, the third section. After the deportation to Babylon, number of people, and then verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the father of the husband of Mary, who was Jesus was born, who is also called Messiah, Christ. And so, verse 17 is a summary. So, all the generations, from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14. So, why why is all this here? It's to connect Christ to the kingly line, to the great promises made to Abraham, to the greatest king of Israel, David, and to the deportation to Babylon. What's that got to do with anything? It's when the kingdom ended. The the kingdom of Israel and then Israel and Judah, when they had to divide a kingdom, lasted about 400 years. And then Babylon came and destroyed Judah, took all the people living in Judah, most of them, to Babylon, and it ended the kingdom. And then for the next 600 years, no kingdom. And so Israel is waiting. Waiting. I, I thought this was an eternal kingdom that would never end. But it's gone. Where's our king? And Matthew is setting up his story to make it abundantly clear, as we'll see in just a moment, that Jesus is the great King. 
And in fact, in Matthew, there are many, many voices that declare that Jesus is the great King. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. The wise men who come to um, Jerusalem and then Bethlehem, where is He who has been born King of the Jews? So the wise men declare it. Verse 6, the uh, chief priests and scribes, they do some research. They go to the book of Micah and they discover, Ah, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Scriptures declare it. And even, ironically, the chief priests and the scribes say, Oh, he's the king. He's the king. Speaking of irony, chapter 4, verse 8. This is during the wilderness temptation. And Satan himself, verse 8, takes him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Who do these kingdoms belong to? Ultimately, they belong to Jesus. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to these, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Even Satan indirectly is acknowledging that Jesus is the great King. Look at, um, oh, I skipped one. Chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist starts his ministry. First words out of his mouth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king is at hand. You don't have a kingdom without a king. Look at verse uh, chapter 10. I told you you were moving fast. Chapter 10. Jesus sends out the twelve. And, uh, verse 5. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because the king is at hand. Look at chapter 16. Jesus, this is two and a half years into His ministry. He's way up north. He's actually outside of Israel, up in Caesarea Philippi. And He asked the disciples a question. You know this passage. Who do the people say that I am? Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, You are Messiah. You are Christ. You are the Chosen One. And after that, Jesus turns around, heads south, to be crucified. Look at uh, chapter 20, verse 30. They went out of Jericho. A great crowd followed Him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside when they heard that Jesus was passing by. 
they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Son of David, Son of the great King. Again, more irony here. These men can't see. They're blind, and yet they do see. They see that Jesus is the rightful King. Whereas the scribes and Pharisees, they have eyes, but they do not see. Chapter 21, verse 5. Let me read a few verses from chapter 21. The triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says a thing to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put their cloaks on it, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. So the crowds are acknowledging he's the king. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, even the children see, they were indignant. (laughs) And they said to him, don't you hear what they are saying? Jesus said, yes. They're saying exactly what the Scriptures said they would say. One voice after another in the Gospel of Matthew declaring, the King has come, the King has come, the King is here. Chapter 27. Even His enemies acknowledge that He is the great King. Jesus is before the Pilate, before the governor, Pilate. And the governor asked him in 2711, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. And then down in verse 37, Pilate has this posted over Jesus. This placard put on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of of the Jews. Those brutal Roman soldiers, even they acknowledge it. Verse 28 of chapter 27, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders in verse 41, the same thing. 
Christ is on the cross. The chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Some king. Yeah, some king. All these voices declaring that He is the great King. Let's look at one of the climactic events then in in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 26, verse 63. Jesus is before Caiaphas, the high priest. He's being pummeled with questions and false accusations. And he remains silent. And everybody's amazed that he can remain silent Verse 63, Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? You have said it, Jesus said to him. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Of course, Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, in which Daniel has that vision of one coming before the Almighty, the Son of Man, one like the Son of Man, and He's given dominion and power and a kingdom and glory forever. The high priests know this. The high priests know what Jesus is saying. I am the Son of Man. I am the one who has been given all authority. Verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. That was the final decision. Jesus, the King, would be killed. But of course, the king doesn't stay dead, does he? Hallelujah. We have a risen king that we serve. But is he reigning now? Is he really the king. Does he have dominion over all the nations? Look over, uh, we're going to come back to Matthew, but look over at Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and uh, the disciples are filled with uh, speaking in tongues, different languages. And then Peter stands up to preach his first post-Holy Spirit message. Listen to what he says in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn, sworn with an oath to him, to David that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, 
he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. And here's where I want you to pay attention. Being therefore exalted at the right hand, the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but Jesus did. But He Himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see what happened? After the resurrection, there was a coronation. It says that He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. The right hand of the Father, Daniel chapter 7, is the position of power and authority and glory. And after the resurrection, Jesus was crowned in heaven the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He was given dominion and authority over all the nations. And the Father said, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then the Father gave Him a coronation gift. What do you give someone that has everything? He gave him the gift of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus then took and poured out on His people. Which brings us to our text for this morning. This is all just the introduction. Don't worry, it's a, it's a short message Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to grab a water real quick. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped, but some doubted. I wonder why they doubted. This is a a few weeks after the resurrection. Jesus has already shown His his nail-pierced hands to Thomas. He's already uh, been on the beach with Peter and six other disciples as they were fishing and and uh, bake the fish for them for their breakfast. But they're still doubting. I don't think they're doubting the resurrection. They've had enough evidence of that. What are they doubting? Maybe they're doubting, is He really the King? Is He, is he really bringing in the Kingdom of God? Can it be? This doesn't look like what we were expecting. 
What are we doing up here in Galilee? The, the center is Jerusalem. You know, the, the mountain is Zion. And we're at another mountain, uh, an unnamed mountain. What are we doing up here? Surely if the kingdom is coming and the king comes, it's in Jerusalem. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Because He's just been crowned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Son of Man that has, been, has received the nations and the dominions from the Father. He's seated at the place of honor and authority next to His Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, He is the King. He is the greatest King. All the other kings, little kings, they, they, they're pretenders. He's so far above the greatest rulers of the earth but He's ruling from exile. And He has a representative people to, to, to take care of His business until He returns. And that's the church. That's you and me. And so what are we to do? Well, we're to go. Go. We're not to hang back. We're not to wait for them to come to us. We're to go. Where do we go? To all the nations. Because the nations belong to our great King. Even though many of them don't know it yet. And what are we to do? We're to baptize and make disciples. We're, we're, to, we're to make more followers. The King has left us to bring other rebels back to His rule. That's our job. That's why we're here. You know, when we were saved, Jesus could have brought us right back to heaven, but He didn't because He left us a big job to do. You know, our, our soldiers in uh, Afghanistan, they're, they're meeting with lower-level Taliban. And their job is to flip the Taliban. Taliban are the bad guys. And our guys are talking to them, saying, hey, come over to the good side. Come over to the other side. That's our job. To flip the rebels to the good side. To the side of the great king. And the beginning of that process is for them to take an oil loyalty oath. An oath of loyalty. It's called baptism. It's where one former rebel declares his allegiance to a new king. King Jesus. But then that's just the beginning because there's a long process to become a faithful follower of this king. 
And so we're to make disciples. We're to teach them to obey everything that this great King has taught us. I think about this passage differently than I used to. I used to think when when I would read the words, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I used to think, and I think this is true, that Jesus is saying, I am deputizing you as my people, as my followers, as my representatives on planet earth, I'm deputizing you to speak on my behalf, to work on my behalf, to be my hands and my feet and my mouth until I return. Think about that. That's pretty remarkable that we have the privilege of saying to people, this is what God says. This is what God says about you. This is, this is good news that I have for you. And I speak in Jesus' name. Wow. We have authority to do that. He's given us His authority. But there's a new understanding I have from this little phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying also, do you realize who is issuing this command? It is me. It is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I mean, you know, think about if, if somebody, if the boss of your company said to you, I want you to do this, you're, you're going to stand up and salute the flag. Yes, sir, I'd be happy to do that. The king, the great king, the king of kings has said to us, go make disciples, baptize, and teach. And so it's not an optional suggestion that the great king is giving. It's a command coming from the one that you you want to obey his commands, right? (laughs) And so we're called to go, to speak, to share the gospel, to make disciples. The story's not over yet, right? The story is not over, and we're part of the script. And tomorrow morning, hundreds of thousands of Americans are going to wake up, and they aren't going to think about God for one moment. And they're going to live their self-absorbed, self-centered lives. And, And if they think of God, they'll use His name as a curse. And there are one million Muslims who will wake up tomorrow morning and bow towards Mecca and pledge their allegiance to Allah and to Muhammad. And there are 10,000 Hindus that will bathe tomorrow morning in the Ganges River to absolve themselves, they hope, of their sins. And there are 20 million Nepalese Hindus that will wake up tomorrow morning and they'll be crying out to their 200 million different gods. 
and the instruction to Rock Valley Bible Church is to go and make disciples, baptize, and teach. And you've been doing that. You've been making disciples in Nepal, besides here in the Rockford area. Put up Pastor Tom Rye again. The very first day when we began our training, we were, the training was happening up in a, in, a, in a meeting room up the side of a mountain, and I was just starting to walk up there. It was, it was Monday morning. We were getting ready to start. Everybody was up there. I was making my way up. And this guy comes trudging up the road with a backpack on. He was the last guy to arrive uh, at the training, Tom Rye. Well, I later learned that it took four days for him to get there. Four days. Uh, Next slide. This is part of the reason why. There aren't many roads, and when there are roads... Sometimes you'll have these massive traffic jams, either because there's a strike. You know, when people are unhappy in Nepal, their favorite way of dealing with it is block the road. Or because the next one, there's a landslide. And so Tom Rye, Pastor Tom Rye, took four days to get there. The last two days he had to walk to the training site, through the mountains, to get to us. So we get in the room, and he's sitting, and the very first message was Pastor Steve. Jonah chapter 1. You remember Jonah, right? And uh, so here's Steve, and Pastor Tom Rye is sitting right there. We're on the same level, sitting right there. And he is, he's just not with it. He's just, it looks like he's in a daze. And I even said to one of my coworkers, what's going on with him, I wonder? I mean, it's like he wasn't even paying attention. And, and I thought, oh, maybe he's tired. You know, I didn't know that it had taken four days. He was really tired. Well, during the break time, they have a little tea and cookies and so on. And everybody's talking, but Tom Rye goes outside, and he's just kind of sitting on a rock looking out at the mountains. I'm thinking, what, what's up with this guy? I had the privilege of having breakfast with him the next morning. And he told me his story. He had come to the training ready to quit the ministry. Ready to quit. He'd had enough. And you see, he's got six kids. He's got to pay for their schooling. He doesn't make any money as a pastor. And so he had just decided, I'm quitting the ministry. But he came anyway. I don't know why. He didn't know why. And Pastor Steve is preaching through Jonah chapter 1 about God's disobedient servant. And it's as though God took a sledgehammer to Tom Rye's head and went bam. And he was sitting out on that rock during the break, his head spinning because of what the Holy Spirit had just done to him through the Word of God. And that next day, as he's telling the story, he said, I, I repented. I realized God, God has not given me permission to leave the ministry. 
I'm staying in the ministry. And we are now equipping this brother to faithfully teach the Word so he can teach others to teach the Word as well. Now he has a co-worker that we're training as well. Thank you for investing in Pastor Tom Rye's life. You're doing what Jesus said we are to do. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and I am with you always to the end of the age. The job of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is to go. And that means sending some. Some will go and others, the rest of us, will send those who go. Pray for these guys in Nepal. Pray for them. Tough life. As they go to train others, they've got to navigate these roads and these strikes and all of that. Pray for them. Pray for Tom Rye. But I want to encourage you, even here in Rockford, you're here to go and flip the rebels so they become faithful followers of the great King. You're here to make disciples. Are you discipling someone? You're saying, what do I know? You know a lot more than some others. It's all a continuum, right? Are you discipling someone? Helping someone learn what it means to be a faithful follower of the great King? Maybe you need to be discipled so that you learn yourself how to become a faithful follower. God's been using you Might He use you more and more in the coming months and years for His great glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for this great church. And I thank You how You've used this church in faraway nations like Nepal and in neighborhoods in this area. And I pray, Lord, that what Rock Valley Bible has seen would be merely first fruits. Father, I pray that You would use this church. They would use the authority that You have given them through Christ to be the people of God. I pray they would go. I pray they would send. I pray that they would baptize and make disciples and teach. Oh, Father, use this church for Your great glory so that when the King returns, there will be a whole host of rebels that have become faithful followers and will worship this great King when He returns. We pray for this in the strong, compelling, glorious, regal name of Jesus the King. Amen.